Half-Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Reckoning, which had its festival debut in 2020, but which wasn't released wide until its debut on DVD and Shudder in 2021. It's written by Neil Marshall, Charles Kirk, and Edward Evers Spindell, whose story with Anthony Jones, Red Hex, formed the basis for the screenplay, and directed by Neil Marshall. Now, Marshall burst onto the scene in 2002 as a very hot commodity with his debut film, Dog Soldiers, and followed it up with an instant classic, The Descent. Unfortunately, audiences failed to respond to his third film, Doomsday, or his historical epic that followed, Centurion, and he was forced to re-establish his credentials on television with episodes of Hannibal, Constantine, Game of Thrones, and Westworld before he could get back to doing films. His most recent movie before The Reckoning, the 2019 remake of Hellboy, was also poorly received. The film stars Charlotte Kirk as Grace Haverstock. She's probably best known for her roles in the science fiction film Vice and the drama No Panic with a Hint of Hysteria, but that may change depending on the reaction to her upcoming role as Nicole Simpson in the movie Nicole and O.J. Opposite her in the film as witch hunter John Moorcroft is Sean Pertwee, son of famed Doctor Who actor John Pertwee, of course I'm going to mention a Doctor Who connection, who has been working hard since the late 80s with dozens of appearances on British television as well as feature roles in Event Horizon, Dog Soldiers, Doomsday, Mutant Chronicles, and a lengthy turn as Alfred Pennyworth in the Gotham TV series that would probably be his most recognizable role for American audiences. Stephen Waddington plays Squire Pendleton. You may recognize him as the Duke of Buckingham in The Tudors, or for his roles in Sleepy Hollow and The Last of the Mohicans. Joe Anderson plays the late Joseph Haverstock in Flashbacks and Hallucinations. He was Mason Verger in Hannibal and Russell in the 2010 remake of The Crazies. Suzanne McGowan plays Ursula under heavy burn makeup. She has almost no other credits, having really only started acting recently. The same is true of Callan Golden, who plays Edwin Oswald, and Sarah Lambie, who plays Kate Tobias. Leon Ockenden, who plays Kate's husband Morton, has a bit more of a background, mostly in British TV shows like Coronation Street and Family Affair. And rounding out the main cast, we have Emma Campbell-Jones, who plays Grace's mother Jane in Flashbacks and Hallucinations. She's had a number of guest roles on British television, including an appearance in the Doctor Who episode The Wedding of River Song, and Ian White as the Devil himself. White is another one of those talented physical actors whose tall, slender physique can be built up easily with prosthetics, which makes him of immense value to genre productions. He's already been on Brave New World, Game of Thrones, Prometheus, Clash of the Titans, Solomon Kane, and both Alien vs. Predator movies, despite only starting acting in 2004. The movie opens with a caption promising that the film was, quote, inspired by actual events, unquote, which is so famous to movie audiences at this point that the IMDb trivia sections are full of people pointing out goofs and inaccuracies, 
and Dan O'Bannon famously satirized it in Return of the Living Dead by putting a similar notice in front of a movie that ends with the U.S. government nuking Kentucky. It is true, however, that England in 1665, which the opening crawl tells us is the setting of the film, was the time of the Great Plague of London, in which possibly as many as a third of the inhabitants of England's greatest city died of a plague caused by poor sanitation and overcrowding, combined with the Yersinia pestis bacterium, which is spread by fleas and lice. But pretty much everything else about the opening crawl is dead wrong. The plague did not spread across the land. In fact, most of London's wealthy escaped death specifically by journeying to their country estates, and fewer than 10% of parishes outside London had a higher than average death rate in 1665. The populace was not superstitious and prone to witch hunting during this period. In fact, the height of English witch trials was during the interregnum of the 1640s and 50s, when the Puritans took over the government after the English Civil War and the power of the centralized authority was at an ebb. And this was not the time of the witch finders. Again, that was almost 15 years earlier, when Matthew Hopkins declared himself the witch finder general, which appears to be an entirely made-up title, and used a number of illegal techniques to extract confessions from suspected witches. I, I specifically mention illegal because it's little understood that even by the standards of the time, torture was at least nominally outlawed. Many of the methods Hopkins used, though, such as sleep deprivation, wouldn't have been seen as torture by the courts of the era, and of course, as previously mentioned, the central legal authorities of Britain were unable to enforce many of their edicts due to the precarious nature of Oliver Cromwell's Puritan government. Even at the time, though, Hopkins was a controversial figure, and many witchfinders of the era were subject to assault and robbery as they traveled the countryside in an effort to destroy their records and disrupt their work. It was far from a monolithic acceptance of the evils of witchcraft and witchery. A lot of these guys were seen as quacks and frauds and charlatans even at the time. But in any event, the main point I'm making is that this isn't at all about history. It's about myth. The plague is a symbol of ignorance and superstition, killing backwards peasants who didn't know about modern medicine. The witch hunts are a symbol of misogyny and superstition enforcing patriarchal authority. And even though a more accurate version of this movie could almost certainly be done with less than five minutes of googling, that movie wouldn't have been the one that Marshall wanted to make. This owes as much to hammer horror as it does to any textbook. The crawling text rolls up over a shot that's honestly one of the most gorgeous of the whole movie. And as much as I'm going to be fairly critical of this film, there is no question that it's beautifully shot, and Marshall has a talent for making even the grotesque look exquisite. In this case, it's a top-down shot of a mass grave, and Marshall frames the quick-limed bodies like they're a marble fresco, with the corpse in the center reaching up for a deliverance that will never come. We then see a brief black-and-white flashback of a woman, who we'll come to know as Jane, Grace's mother, being dragged out of her house by soldiers while a young Grace looks on, and the title card, The Reckoning, comes up. This is a scene we'll revisit later, needless to say, but for now we come back to the present, where a very recently widowed Grace cuts her husband's corpse down from the tree where he hung himself. In a series of interleaved flashbacks, we jump back and forth between Grace burying him and the happy, romantic life they led in times past before he made the fateful decision to go into town to sell some goods and had his cup switched with that of a sick man by the local squire, who covets Grace. The flashbacks are all shot in the most amazing, golden, natural light, and I'm not going to lie. 
everything in this movie is so beautiful it almost detracts from the atmosphere. It reminds me a lot of the historical dramas we got in the 90s, like The Last of the Mohicans, Far and Away, The Scarlet Letter, where the emphasis was always on glamorizing the scenery and the beautiful actors and the lush, gorgeous cinematography over any kind of pretense at historical accuracy. I know, I'm banging on about the lack of historical accuracy. It's going to be important later, I promise. When Joseph realizes he has the plague, he decides to end his life to prevent any risk of infecting his wife and newborn daughter, Abby. Grace is nonetheless forced to cut down and bury him herself, which risks transmission of the plague, but she's clearly determined to give him the dignity he deserves. There's a lot of this flashback material, and Kirk and Anderson honestly do sell their relationship as husband and wife very convincingly. Again, though, it feels so romantic that it's almost clashing with the tone of the rest of the movie rather than contrasting with it. The emphasis on cozy domesticity and lusty marital bliss creates a very specific atmosphere of conservative, small c conservative, not current political conservative, and strictly defined patriarchal normativity. That is to say, for all that this movie is going to present itself as a feminist film and present Grace as a feminist hero, the scope of her power is very narrowly limited to the kind of power that fits the role of a wife and mother that she very much loves. She's going to defend her home, she's going to defend her daughter, and she's going to stop the bad men who hurt women, and the symbol of everything she's fighting for is the homestead in which she cheerfully submits to the loving authority of man and God. These structures of authority are never brought in for any critical examination, and in fact are emphasized here as the normal world that Grace departs from. In other words, Joseph is the normal guy, the three men in this movie who are absolutely terrible shits are the bad apples that are spoiling the whole bunch, and the norm is that women would be happy to submit to men's authority as husband if only the husbands were good. This is not how it works. This is not how any of it works. In the wake of Joseph's death, the lecherous squire shows up to remind Grace that she still owes rent despite her husband's death, leaving her in a precarious position. They have almost nothing saved up, having possibly spent it all on Grace's elegant clothing and the horse she rides into town to ask for a loan. Although it's difficult to tell whether that's an actual character point, or just the film's desire to make everything look so lush and beautiful and gorgeously shot that they pump production value into literally everything, even poverty. Charlotte Kirk doesn't look like a peasant. There's literally nothing muddy, dirty, or unkempt about her in any scene. Her hair is perfectly coiffed, her face is always made up. Of course, a lot of the mud and dirt and grime of 17th century poverty is itself a stereotype of questionable authenticity but it's telling which stereotypes they're choosing to reject and which ones they're choosing to embrace. Grace leaves her baby with a friend Kate, and Kate's husband Morton, while she goes into the local city, which is depicted as though it were plague-ridden London in miniature. Rats everywhere, smoke from burning bodies, dogs eating corpses in the street, plague doctors with their long bird-like masks, a landscape straight out of hell. She asks the local innkeeper Ben Tuttle, played by Cal McEninnick, for a loan, but he can't help her. Instead, she has a dream of being visited by Joseph, who reminds her that he was buried wearing their gold wedding ring. 
She exhumes him and takes it off his finger, giving it along with her own to the squire to secure six months' rent. But this was never about money to the squire, and he first propositions, then sexually assaults Grace. It's a tense scene, but again, it's played more for titillation and melodrama than any kind of meaningful emotional moment. Grace fights him off and sends him away at gunpoint in a moment sold so ostentatiously as, quote-unquote, girl power, that it trivializes the attempted rape, and Waddington plays the character like a cartoon. It's hard to see this as a real serious scene when the bad guy rides away shouting, You'll pay for this, harlot! And the very fact that it's all about the rent gives the whole thing the air of an old melodrama. You know, you expect me twirling his mustache and saying, You must pay the rent, and her going, I can't pay the rent, etc. Sure that anyone of a certain age is familiar with that particular melodrama. And the whole thing really feels like something Demi Moore would have suggested for her character in The Scarlet Letter, another historical drama where the protagonist is a completely modern feminist in a very caricatured patriarchy. We then get a slightly unusual choice, a flashback within a flashback. Grace explains to Joseph, who is at this point in the film dead, that when she was a child, her mother Jane was sentenced to death by John Moorcroft, the notorious witchfinder, after he coerced her to confess by threatening Grace's life. It feels a bit like a scene that may have been planned to go into the movie elsewhere and was inserted here simply because they realized that without it, we would have no idea that Moorcroft and Grace have a history together or even what really happened to Grace's mother. Honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a version of this cut together where the relationship between Joseph and Grace wasn't told in flashback at all, and the decision was made to change it in editing, because this already takes 30 minutes to get to the first real mention of witch hunting in a movie about witch hunting. Meanwhile, at the inn, the squire enters in a furious rage. He decides to get back at Grace by spreading rumors that she's a witch, and I think it says a lot that there is literally one minute of real-time conversation from the moment the squire suggests there might be something supernatural afoot to the moment where the townsfolk are demanding to burn Grace at the stake. Don't get me wrong, I understand that, as previously mentioned, this is a film about witch hunting that's already a quarter over and hasn't gotten to any witch hunting yet, but there's something inadvertently comical about the speed at which they skim over the rumor-mongering in their haste to get to the meat of the plot. It makes the townsfolk seem cartoonishly dumb and evil, and strips a lot of the drama away from what should be the emotional core of the story. We're being told that this is a huge betrayal by people who should know her and trust her and care for her out of misogyny and mistrust, but in practice it feels like they've just been waiting for a chance to set fire to Grace and this is the first excuse they've gotten. I haven't mentioned it, by the way, but one of the townsfolk at the end who spreads rumors about Grace and who was seen in the earlier sequence where Joseph drank the tainted wine is Lenora, played by Emma Holzer, as a jealous rival who resents Grace's relationship with Joseph and wants to get back at her for it. She's also hinted at as being a sex worker, and she's a character of Roma heritage who is played by a white woman and who wears a very stereotypically Romani outfit and is referred to with racial slurs. This is another example of how authenticity is often used as a defense by filmmakers for aesthetic decisions. There's no reason Lenora has to be Roma, especially when the actor isn't, but God forbid that they avoid turning her into a stereotype once they've decided to make her Romani, because that's just what it was like back then, right? 
That night, a group of villagers wearing plague doctor masks, for no discernible reason they don't think she has the plague and they're not doctors, captures Grace on the squire's orders, setting the house on fire and taking Abby away from her before throwing her into a jail cell. Morton is among them, and in fact he's the one who finally catches up with her and grabs her, which sets the stage for a subsidiary conflict between him and his wife Kate that serves as a bit of a commentary on the main action between Grace and her tormentors. Kate is stabbed through the hand in the fight, an injury that will never be mentioned or shown again and will in no way trouble her for the remainder of the film. Again, it's not that I want her to be authentically infected and die at the midpoint, but given that so many of the really troublingly misogynistic decisions made in this film are based on the logic of, oh, that's how it really was back in the day, I kind of feel like you can't just pick and choose when to use that as a defense. This movie is purely the creation of Marshall and his collaborators, but it presents itself as a blameless bystander to history in the way that it depicts the torture of women, and I'm not okay with that. Grace is locked up by two jailers, Peck and Sutter, played by Mark Ryan and Bill Fellows, respectively, who are the closest this film comes to comic relief. They're a sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, lowly sorts who are vaguely aware of their own wickedness, but who find it too much work to challenge a system that doesn't punish them personally. Her fellow prisoners are the innocent young Astrid, played by Indiana Ryan, and the Reverend Malcolm, played by Rick Warden as a sort of walking generator of ominous biblical quotes. It's a bit more lavishly produced than the dungeon sets in The Mask of the Red Death, but aesthetically this set of rooms could be twins. Grace immediately begins having nightmares about her dead husband and dead mother, which will only grow more severe as the film goes on, and be interspersed by nightmares about the devil himself. I'll admit, I kind of have very little patience for these on rewatching the film. When I saw it the first time, I thought they might have been some sort of genuine supernatural occurrence that was leading somewhere dramatically, but they're really just there to add atmosphere and flavor. Which they do, I'll grant you, but there's no devil. She's not really being haunted. It's just a series of stress hallucinations. And not to belabor the point, but even though people absolutely do have those, the movie isn't attempting to be realistic, and I kind of feel like the spooky stuff promises some genuine hauntings it never delivers on. Oh, and meanwhile, Kate confronts Morton over his role in imprisoning Grace, and he slaps her in the face. Because the film doesn't have time to research the Great Plague or authentic witch hunting in its movie about a witch hunt during the Great Plague, but it's got all the time in the world to depict spousal abuse in vivid detail. And with that, we jump into what a title card tells us is Day One of the Witch Trial. Day one is basically just the squire having Grace whipped for an extended period while the crowd shouts, WITCH! Like they're auditioning for a Monty Python and the Holy Grail remake. And it may be about here that I confess to completely losing patience with the film. Because this isn't about making you confront the horrors of misogyny in the 17th century in order to gain real empathy for the suffering of women in the era. It's about using that suffering as fodder for entertainment, displaying it in as much lurid detail as possible while simultaneously wagging fingers at it for being so wrong and nasty and terrible, and hence positioning the filmmakers as feminists by default for opposing it, even while they so clearly enjoy depicting it. It's a movie that wants to have its misogyny cake and eat it too, basically, and I was really disappointed given Neil Marshall's history as a director. When Grace doesn't confess, 
and rejects the squire's offer of lenience in exchange for sexual favors, he sends for the witch-finder John Moorcroft and his assistant Ursula, who's a former witch who survived burning at the stake and has become a repentant convert to the cause of torturing others into redemption. They stop at an inn, and we see one of the very few moments in the film that actually portrays some of the controversy and disdain that witch hunters in the era could expect when a grieving widower tries to assault Moorcroft. But it's mainly there to show how violent and ruthless Ursula can be as she stabs him to death in front of a whole tavern full of people. Down in the cells, one of the prisoners is dying of the plague, and young Edwin, who was outside the cottage when the squire attempted to rape Grace, and who's sympathetic to her plight but timid, gives her water. And Reverend Malcolm gives us a nice big wadge of biblical atmosphere by reciting from the Book of Revelations just as Moorcroft comes into town. He has Grace's bed taken away and orders her to be splashed with cold water whenever she tries to sleep. Which is, I'll grant you, a pretty good reason to include as many hallucinations as we get in the movie. I'd still rather have gotten some real devil stuff, though. The devil, by the way, is a very nice piece of makeup and costume design that looks like a winged version of the cannibal monsters in The Descent, and was the work of a whole team of people including Conal Palmer as prosthetic supervisor. The next day, on day two, Moorcroft affects a semblance of mild politesse, which Sean Pertwee plays to perfection, I'll admit, even as he has her stripped naked to check for a witch's mark. Not personally. He has nuns handle that behind a sheet, which is apparently anachronistic given that Henry VIII had dissolved the monasteries a hundred years earlier, and there wouldn't have been any nuns around to do this, but that's a level of pedantry I'm not concerned with. Sure enough, they find a discolored spot on her neck, and that's enough as far as Moorcroft is concerned. He sends her back to her cell, which kind of seems like an odd decision. Surely that would only have been the beginning of the interrogation? Not that I really want to see more, but it's a decidedly strange bit of timing to the sequence. Moorcroft and the squire bicker over the best way to handle extracting a confession, and it's really hard to get a handle on the scene because I'm honestly not sure what the squire's goals are by this point. He seems to simply be a sadist, hoping to break her will and force a confession out of her, but at the same time it feels like he hasn't quite given up on her as a sexual conquest either. And confession is very much presented as a death sentence, although in real life, women who confess to witchcraft or heresy could receive a lesser sentence. And although Moorcroft very clearly despises the squire's sadism, he's very happy to do exactly what the other man wants. In any event, on day two, Moorcroft accuses Grace of causing her husband's death through witchcraft, which would be a capital offense by the standards of the time, and tests her for witchcraft through a process known as pricking. Now, this was a real thing that was done during the era. Witch finders would use a needle to poke at the flesh of a suspected witch, usually the witch mark itself, looking for a spot that wouldn't feel any pain. But A, the goal was to find witches, not to cause pain, so they would be more likely to use a retractable needle than a real one. B, they used a needle, not a sharpened carpenter's awl. And C, they pricked rather than driving the awl directly into the woman's body up to the handle. Basically, this is another, oh gosh, torture is so horrible and awful and terrible, and we're only showing it to you in lascivious detail so you can understand how awful it really, really, really was back then. Also, Grace will be walking just fine on her stabbed foot for the remainder of the movie. 
Speaking of her walking, she's escorted to her cell by Edwin, who tries to encourage her to keep hope and lets her know that her baby is alive and safe in the South Tower. She's already given up on survival, though, and is aiming solely for the Pyrrhic victory of keeping to the truth no matter how badly they torture her. Ursula, meanwhile, is having doubts about their role in all this, but Moorcroft reminds her that she was purged by fire during her unsuccessful burning, and she renews her commitment to the cause. Incidentally, one of the things I noticed in this scene that's absolutely amazing is how much Sean Pertwee's beard changes the shape of his face. He's almost unrecognizable at times in this film. Ursula goes to confront Grace, who is hallucinating sex with the devil and the faces of her mother and husband telling her to give in, and I'll confess, the hallucinations are interwoven with the narrative very cleverly, becoming almost a seamless part of the interrogation. There's a bit where Ursula is walking in a circle around Grace, and as she does the loops, the other people start joining in the walk, and it's, it's a very nice effect. But Grace tells Ursula that not only is she not a witch, Ursula was never one either. She was only tricked into believing that by Moorcroft. Again, it's more frustrating to see these scenes on a rewatch when it's clear that there's no payoff to them. We don't get any doubt or any repentance from Ursula. They don't connect emotionally over their shared experiences and join up against their tormentors. It's just another scene where Charlotte Kirk gets to smolder defiantly at an authority figure. Ursula is going to remain Ursula for the rest of the movie, and everything is going to be resolved with violence. We go into day four as... Lenora is arrested for unspecified crimes, and Moorcroft flagellates himself, and day four is more torture, this time witnessed by an audience of townsfolk. Kate is among them, but when she tries to protest, Morton drags her away out of fear of attracting Moorcroft's attention and lining her up for the role of next accused witch. Although, let me make it clear, there's no ambiguity to Morton. He's there to be the voice of the patriarchy in their little subplot, eager to turn on his wife the moment there's a difficult choice to be made between her and the power structure that keeps him in his position of privilege in their relationship. Which is absolutely true and accurate, even if it is presented with the same kind of lurid sensationalism that tinges the whole film. And don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to lurid sensationalism. I think there's absolutely a place for it. But The Reckoning keeps positioning itself as a movie that is by default opposed to lurid sensationalism, a serious feminist statement piece about the sorrows and tragedies the patriarchy has visited upon women, and you can't do that while presenting everything in a big, bombastic, cartoonish light that sexualizes the violence against women. And the next moment is the most perfect example of that in the entire film. Moorcroft ostentatiously opens up a wooden case to bring out a device called a choke pair, or a pair of anguish, which is a pear-shaped metal object divided into four spoon-like lobes that are spread apart by turning a screw. He explains to Grace that if she doesn't confess, Ursula will insert it into Grace's vagina and, and open it up until it stretches and tears her vaginal canal to an agonizing degree. When she refuses, he does exactly that, and the next shot we see after Ursula inserts the device is of Grace with her dress soaked with blood from the waist down to the point where she should really honestly be, um, dead. Now, first, this is a scene full of sexualized violence with kinky lesbian overtones that purports to be super feminist simply because the people doing the torture are the bad guys and the person resisting it is our protagonist. 
And there's certainly weight that can be placed onto who's taking what stance in a story, don't get me wrong, but this whole sequence is wallowing in the brutality of the torture, using its historicity as an excuse to show something awful being done to a woman so that it can then condemn that. Second, it's not even historically accurate. The Pair of Anguish is a real device, certainly. You can see them in museums to this day. But there's absolutely no first-hand and no contemporary evidence that they were ever used for a purpose like this. In fact, it may not even be possible. The springs may not have been strong enough to do that kind of damage. Not that anyone's really planning on testing it or anything. But most scholars today believe that this was all part of a 19th century fad to demonstrate the progressive nature of then-modern criminal justice by contrasting it against an imagined past where torture was commonplace and inventive. The Iron Maiden is another device like this that everyone knows about from the movies, but nobody can find any real evidence of prior to the 1800s, and certainly no one can ever find one that was actually used. And again, I'm no more demanding historical accuracy than I am a lack of sensationalism. But when your defense is, we have to be sensationalistic to show how things really are, and things really weren't, then I feel like you at least have to admit that no, you're doing this because you wanted to make something sleazy and exploitative. Honestly, I'd be happier if the movie was openly sleazy and exploitative, because at least then it would know what it wanted to be. Once the torture is over, Moorcroft decides that surviving is evidence enough of her witchery, and declares a confession to be implicit. He sentences both Grace and her daughter to death, despite the squire's protest that Moorcroft promised he was going to break her, and Grace's anguished wails of distress on finding out that her baby is going to die as well. This is pretty much the turning point for Grace, even though it's never explicitly stated as such, she was going to die with dignity, but now finding out that her baby will die as well, she becomes determined to fight back. And on their way back to the farm, Kate and Morton get into a brutal, ugly fight that ends with her startling their horse while he's under the wheels of the wagon, resulting in his head being violently crushed. It's a shockingly real scene, complete with a shockingly real death that would make even the most hardened horror fan cringe, and I'm genuinely unsure what to make of it. I don't like it, certainly, but it's the only scene in the movie that I feel like I'm supposed to be repulsed by, and that's almost a relief compared to all the scenes of sexualized torture and suffering with Grace. On the other hand, all those other sequences with Grace make it impossible to judge this one as its own thing, and not as part of a work that I'm not particularly happy with on the whole. When you have scene after scene that's just dudes telling on themselves, this kind of gets lumped in with that. It's complicated, I think, and that's about all I have to say about it. Having no lingering side effects at all from her torture and massive internal bleeding, Grace hatches a plan to escape. She gets Edwin to gather blood from the plague-stricken prisoner in the cells, and taint Moorcroft and Ursula's wine with it. I did wonder, by the way, whether alcohol might not kill the germs, but apparently CDC says the concentration is too low on wine. God, how did any of us learn anything before the internet? She then teases Moorcraft with the promise of a confession in exchange for Abby's life in order to get him to let her out and talk with him personally so that she can... Um, okay. This is the point where I mention, not complain, but mention that there's so much improvisation and coincidence involved in her escape, and 
Oh, yes, she is going to escape, believe it or not. This is headed to a happy ending. Then I have no idea beyond a certain point what her plan originally was. Ursula goes off to deliver the baby back to the tower. Edwin brings in the tainted wine, then follows Ursula to steal the baby. Grace takes advantage of Moorcroft's momentary inattention to grab a pair of the pricking awls, then tries to induce Moorcroft to drink, but when he refuses to drink alone, she shares the tainted wine with him, sacrificing her own life to ensure he'll die, die of the plague no matter what else happens. Then, in the guise of kneeling for a confession, she stabs the awls straight through his hands and into the table, pinning him in place. Again, that's a lot of strength for a woman who herself has been stabbed through the hand and the feet and lots of other places, and is bled like a stuck pig for most of the day, and hasn't slept for three days. I'm saying this might not be 100% plausible at all. With Moorcroft trapped, she locks the door to prevent interruptions and finally reveals that he murdered her mother. She tells him about the tainted wine, and Pertwee has a wonderful little tremor in his voice as the veneer of superhuman calm he's cultivated through the entire film finally cracks ever so slightly. He calls for Ursula, and somehow she breaks into the room without using the door or the windows, which is perhaps a little bit of a cheat. There's kind of wind blowing from nowhere that suggests she might have learned about a secret passage, but I kind of feel like when you're going to have a secret passage used at a critical juncture in the film, that's a Chekhov's gun situation. You should be establishing that early. In any event, she and Grace fight. Edwin steals the baby from the tower, smashing the drunken squire in the face with a chamber pot when he tries to intervene and knocking him out cold. Ursula begins to get the upper hand in her fight with Grace, despite Grace being absolutely unbothered by her many injuries and three days without sleep, until Grace breaks an oil lamp over her head and shoves her into a candelabra. On fire once again, Ursula leaps out a window to her death and literally explodes on impact in what has to be the most unintentionally hilarious scene in the whole movie. I don't know what she landed on. She lands in the back of a wagon, but there is this huge fireball that goes up. It, it really looks like she just exploded. The castle begins to catch fire. Grace leaves Moorcroft in the burning room with a pistol to kill himself with but not, notably, freeing either of his hands, and heads out with Edwin and the baby. But realizing that she's contracted the plague, she closes the portcullis behind Ed Edwin and tells him that she can't go with him for fear of sickening them too. But surprise! Turns out that the squire swapped wine jugs with Moorcroft, and it's him that's going to die of the plague. Unable to raise the portcullis back up, Grace begins searching for a way past the city walls, ducking into the dungeons to avoid pursuit. She kills Peck with his own plunderbuss, then takes the keys off Sutter and uses them to free Astrid. But before she can do the same with Lenora, the squire arrives, killing Astrid for no reason beyond pure sadism, and again, I will remind you, for a movie that purports to be feminist, this is a movie that just kills a woman for no reason beyond she happens to be there before going after Grace with a sword. But needless to say, if stab wounds to her extremities, massive blood loss, and sleep deprivation don't stop Grace, nothing else will either. She stabs the squire in the stomach with a splintered table leg, then beheads him with his own sword. And with Moorcroft still trapped, unable to even kill himself thanks to a misfiring pistol, even after he frees one of his hands, that's that for the patriarchy! 
Grace escapes by diving into the well in the dungeon and swimming into the river that it apparently connects to. I love the IMDb trivia about that, by the way. It's just, wells do not do this. <laughs> and Edwin and Abby make contact with Kate and head to find someplace safe. The closing crawl tells us that over 500,000 women were executed for witchcraft in Europe and North America. And that estimate is about 10 times higher than the more widely accepted numbers, but that's entirely in keeping with a movie that tries to be as bombastic as possible in order to position itself on the right side of a societal divide it's fully complicit in exploiting. And while I hang on to this movie, yeah, as you might have guessed, I will not. I won't lie, I really walked into this hoping I was going to like it a lot. I thought it would have supernatural elements, I thought it would have more narrative complexity and fewer just scenes of brutality and torture, I thought it would focus a little more on the characters and not just on these repetitive scenes of awful things happening to women. And so yeah, in the end, I just don't think this is one I'll ever see myself wanting to revisit, despite some really good performances, especially from Charlotte Kirk and Sean Pertwee, both of whom are giving their all in this film. That said, it sounds like Marshall's next film, The Lair, is a bit more genre-focused, so maybe that'll be more up my alley instead. Maybe I just don't like his historical stuff. I don't know. If you want to talk about The Lair, Neil Marshall's checkered directorial career, or anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, I don't know when you're listening to this, but as I'm recording it right now, it's September 26th, and we are just about to head into 2021 spooky season. There are five Sundays in October, and I'm going to celebrate the month with weekly episodes focusing on some of the classics of the genre, one a week for the five weeks of October, and I'm going to begin with 1968's seminal zombie film, one of the most influential films in the entire subgenre, in the entire genre, possibly in cinematic history, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. See you then.